0: Well, this morning, uh, yeah, it still is morning so I can speak that way, um, we're in chapter uh, 4 of Daniel's uh, book, and uh, you know, I don't know if you thought about the chapter or read the chapter or did the homework that I asked you to do, which was think about. Fred reminded us in an email this morning what the homework question was. (laughs) So at the end, um, and I think we'll have time, it's a long chapter though, we'll see. But um, I do want to speculate a little bit about that. Um, And that question, of course, is will we see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? As you know, um, if you have read it, and uh, if you're looking at your notes on page 6, This is, this chapter is what I'm talking about. This is one of the most remarkable, really, truly remarkable chapters in the entire Bible. And and I'm not, that's not an understatement. I I really mean that for two reasons. One, this is actually the copy of a royal proclamation uh, that King Nebuchadnezzar issued. Um, Now, when I say a royal proclamation, what I mean by that is this is something that he. Uh, would have dictated to his secretary, uh, if you will, and then it was put on uh, tablets, and it was distributed to all of the governors of all of the provinces of of, uh, the uh, Empire of Babylonia. And it was to be read to the, uh, not not necessarily every person in the empire, that would not be accurate, but in all of the governor's uh, palaces, and all of the uh, governor's residences. Um, and for that reason, it's, it's just almost astonishing. The second reason that it's important is this is a unique proclamation. Now, um, I, I don't know how much you men know about the ancient world I don't know how much you know about ancient history, so I'll assume you probably don't know a lot because that's not something usually you study. And even when you have history classes in high school or college, That's something you zip through real quickly to get to the modern period, which is where you're really interested. (laughs) Like, why did World War II occur and things like that? But I say all that because in the ancient world, we have, I I would say, at least hundreds, if not thousands, of royal edicts from all the empires of the ancient world. And those edicts are always glorifying the king. I mean, almost making the king, whether it's Persia or or ancient Greece or ancient Rome or ancient Babylonia or ancient Assyria a demigod and they never say anything negative about themselves exalting themselves and one of my favorite examples that's in the British Museum is the stele of Sennacherib and if you ever go to the British Museum in London it's it's a remarkable stele because it's the account of Sennacherib's invasion of Judah and he lays siege to Jerusalem it's recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 19 And he says, I had King Hezekiah locked up like a bird in a cage," which is accurate. That's what a siege is. What he doesn't say is that the next night, God struck his army and killed 185,000 of his troops. He fled back to Nineveh, the capital of his empire, and in a year was assassinated by his sons. It doesn't quite tell us all that. It just says, I had him successfully under siege in Jerusalem. And it was not a siege that he was successful. He never conquered Jerusalem. I'm saying all that because what what you see if you read this, and as we're going to read it here in a minute, this is a warts and all kind of account of Nebuchadnezzar's life. Because he declares how proud he was and how exalted himself as he stood on the high places of the kingdom and city of Babylon and how he was struck with mental illness. And he makes it very clear. Yahweh struck him. And then he makes that declaration at the end about the nature of Yahweh. And that's what it will cause us to ask. So does that make sense? It's just, that, that's why this is, it's just absolutely an astonishing edict. It, there is nothing like this coming out of the ancient world. Which again shows us why this, this is an important book. It gives us a lot of historical insight, helping, helping us to understand What Daniel chapter 4, verse 17 and 25 says, The most high rules among the affairs of men and gives power to whomsoever he wishes. Let's get started. Verse 1, chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of all the people's nations, men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. That is a very typical greeting to a royal proclamation. It seemed good to me to declare... The signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. Now the title, Most High God, is a Hebrew title. That's not a Babylonian title. That is not a reference to Marduk or Bel or Nebo, or any of the other of the many Babylonian gods. He is unmistakably talking about the God of Daniel, the God of the Hebrews, the God of the people whom he took into exile. And then he says, done for me. Every chapter so far in this book, he has been talking about Daniel's God, chapter 2, or chapter 3, <coughs> excuse me, Shadrach, Meshach, go. your God. Now, what the Most High God has done for me. Chapter 4, this is all personalized. Verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, his dominion is from generation to generation. Now, that that's almost poetic language. But if you were to summarize what Nebuchadnezzar is saying in verse 3, what word would you use? What character trait or what attribute of God is Nebuchadnezzar summarizing in that verse? The Most High God is what? Sovereign. Sovereign. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. Now, again, just let that sink into your heart a little bit. It's a very common thing to read in the Psalms. As the people of Israel, or whether it's Asaph or whether it's Moses or whether it's David, some of the writers of the Psalms, they say things like that all the time. This is not David. This isn't Solomon. This isn't Abraham. This is a pagan king. I'm getting all animated here sorry this is a pagan king declaring this and i mean it's just this is why i just don't don't gloss over this quickly just let this sink into your heart this this is an amazing statement on a royal proclamation that is going all over the empire verse four now he t- begins to tell the story in this proclamation, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. Words of security, words of prosperity, which would be accurate. Verse 5 I saw a dream and it made me fearful, and these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions of my mind kept alarming me. So again, we've seen this a couple of times in the book. He's had a dream. It's disturbing. And so he wants to know what this means. So I gave orders to bring to my presence all the wise men of of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Very typical thing to happen. And we've seen this before. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners came in and I laid them to dream, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Finally, verse 8 Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar. Remember, that should be a reminder to you, that's his Babylonian name. His Hebrew name is Daniel, his Babylonian name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. And uh, Belteshazzar, he is named Belteshazzar after the god Bel, B-E-L, one of the gods of the Babylonian pantheon. And in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you. Tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen, along with its interpretation. Now these are the visions in my mind as I lay in my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. Verse 11, the tree grew, tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in its food for all. Beasts of the field found shade under it. Birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the vision in my mind as I lay in my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. Now, let me stop there for just a minute. This is sort of a exegetical comment I'd like to make, because this is a this is a significant Hebrew word, uh, Aramaic word that's being used here. An angelic watcher. I don't know what all the translations we have here around the room. A holy one. Okay, holy one. I mean, I'm reading from the New American Standard. It's it's a unique word. And it, it seems to be referring to a special class of angels. There's something special about this visitor, this watcher, this holy one that appears to, to Nebuchadnezzar in this dream. Okay? So that's just, as you'll see in just a minute, that clearly, verse 13, is clearly referring to a messenger from God, the most high God. And Nebuchadnezzar has chosen to use a word in this proclamation that focuses in. Did I lose you by that comment, or are you with me? No,
1: we're with you. But uh, he also uh, expresses he, he he obviously believes in heaven. You know, at this point.
0: Yes. Um, don't make too much of that, because remember, in the ancient world, they're not atheists. There are no atheists in the ancient world. And they believe in an afterlife and they believe in a heaven and they believe in but not the way it's described in the, in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament so and that's unlike today where so many people are very secular and are atheists and don't believe in the afterlife and so on that was not typical in the ancient world but Nebuchadnezzar is using a word there that indicates again what this proclamation is all about the most high God has touched me and so he uses a word like that. All right now verse 14. He shouted and spoke out as father. Who is the he? This angelic watcher, this holy one, this unique angel. Chop down the tree, cut off its branches, strip its foliage, scatter its fruit, let the beast flee from under it, the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with the band of iron and broads around it in the new grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him share with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed ...from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods, or you could translate that, seven years pass over him. This sentence is by the angelic decree of the watcher, and the decision is the command of the Holy One. Now this is a very, very, very important statement. In order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. That is a statement of the sovereignty of the Most High God. The purpose of this dream is to learn this truth. Now that's the dream, and it's bizarre, isn't it? It's a bizarre dream. But the point of the dream is verse 17. Verse 18. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, remember that's Daniel, tell me its interpretation. Inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now verse 19 through 27 is Daniel interpreting the dream. Now, again, this is a very bizarre dream about this tree. It's a huge tree, and everybody's blessed by the tree. It's chopped down except the very chunk of it and its roots. And then this thing about having a beast's mind for seven years. We're going to see what all that means in a minute. And then the point of the dream. Verse 17, the point of the dream. Got it? Okay, your silence means you got it. Okay, now let's look at Daniel's interpretation of the dream. And just imagine, remember, this is a royal decree. Nebuchadnezzar is writing this very honestly. He's not hiding anything. And Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded, and said Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. Why do you think Daniel said that?
1: He was preparing him for bad news. Yeah, he was
0: preparing (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar. This is not going to be a good dream, buddy. You don't know what this is going to bring you. And, you know, I mean, I just... Remember, Nebuchadnezzar is kind of a typical ancient world king. If he doesn't like you, he kills you, tears you limb from limb, and destroys your house.
2: I have a question. Is this something that you would hear typically in government, having been in it? <laughs> I'm just <kidding>.
1: uh, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know, I don't know that I can relate that to uh, generally uh, the committee. Well... We've got good news and bad news. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's. that's, that's, that's yeah.
0: No. Okay. Verse twenty, Daniel now begins specifically interpretation. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, its height reached to the sky, and was visible all the earth. And its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all. Under which the beasts of the field, and which the branches of the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king. You are that tree. That tree symbolizes you. That's the point. For you become great. You've grown strong. Your majesty's become great and reach to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. And that's true. Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar ruled much of the known world. And that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven, saying, Chop down the tree, destroy it, you leave the stump with the truth to the ground, but the band of iron bronze around it, the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods, or seven years pass over him. This is the interpretation of the king, this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you will be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and drenched with the dew of heaven And seven periods of time or seven years will pass over you. Now notice, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it in whomever he wishes. Identical to verse 17. But now Nebuchadnezzar knows he's the tree but now he knows, too, the chopping down of the tree. He's going to lose his kingdom for a period of seven years. And he's to, we, we know this to be a mental illness. It is called bocanthropy. It's rare, but it is a mental illness where a person loses all of their rational faculties and lives like an animal in the field. Bocanthropy. I think I have written it in the notes, actually. Sure, yeah, on page, top of page
2: 7.
0: Mm-hmm. Boentropy or ly- lycanthropy. It, it, it's a mental illness. It's a verifiable mental illness. I mean, it's, it's rare. It's not something you, you typically hear. But it is a mental illness, and it's a documented mental illness. So the point is, Nebuchadnezzar, you are going to become mentally ill. You're going to live like an animal for seven years until you learn something, until you learn a truth, that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind, the statement of the sovereignty of God. Verse 26, And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. In other words, you'll get your kingdom back. Once you recognize that truth, you'll get your kingdom back.
2: It's almost like the prodigal son. I mean, he was with the and that you know, and he got he, he repented and he came back and he got restored. You know? Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, it's just uh, it's it's a tremendous. Uh, I'm gonna turn this down here. Excuse me. Things keep stinging. I should that. All right. Any questions? I mean, it's pretty straightforward, but we heard the dream, now we've seen the interpretation. Now we're going to see it fulfilled. Any questions so far? Are you with me or with what's going on?
2: I just had a comment in regard to... Uh, he, he asked the, uh, his um, special uh, group of people... Right, his advisors,
0: right. Nebuchadnezzar did. Yeah,
2: to tell him what the dream was... And here he uh, just, I think, well, it appears to me that he omitted it here, but just simply asked for the interpretation. Um, did, I mean,
0: do you have a... Um, well, I think the, um, if you look at verse 7, it tells us that to these various advisors, magicians, etc., he relates the dream to them, but they're not able to interpret it. This isn't like what we saw in chapter two. Right. Well, he didn't tell them the dream either. He showed me the dream and the interpretation. He apparently told them the, inter- the dream, and then the interpretation. The same with Daniel. Is that?
2: Yeah, I was just wondering why he didn't bring that out. Oh. Didn't
0: tell them uh, in this part. But I, I mean, I, I'm not sure. I, I can yeah. answer that. I don't know. All right.
1: My my translation says. <clears throat> Daniel says, it may be that then your prosperity will continue. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of contention, uh, the word may. Well, Maybe.
0: because you you must recognize that it is heaven that rules. And if okay. you don't recognize this, then you won't be restored. I think that's the implication. Okay. Now, I want you to look at verse 27, though. It's a very important verse. This is Daniel speaking, and this is part of the decree. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you, Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness, from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, in case there may be prolonging of your prosperity. In effect, what is Daniel saying in verse 27? And he's telling the king to still do right. And therefore...
1: That's process. right. That's
0: right. Yeah. He is giving him—that is Daniel, speaking for God—is giving Nebuchadnezzar a chance to avoid this. So I mean, king, if it's pleasing to you, break away from sins, do righteousness. So it's—I wrote in my Bible again—the grace of God. He's giving him a chance. He can avoid this. Well, verse twenty-eight and following shows us he doesn't listen to Daniel. All right. Now, as we read this, I want you—I want to ask you this question: If you were to assign using just one word, what is the primary fundamental sin of Nebuchadnezzar that's being? illustrated here as I read these next verses. All this remember, this is the decree now continuing. Verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later. Twelve months after what? After the
1: torn.
0: Yeah, after the dream and after the interpretation and after the warning. So it's one year later. And if you're following and you're interested, this is 582 BC. And by the way, this is really interesting. Do you know what chronicles are? In the ancient world, chronicles were every king, and we have just thousands of these in all the libraries of the ancient kingdoms that have been found in archaeology, but the king had secretaries who recorded everything that happened every year of his kingdom. And many of the kings, we see this in Esther, King Xerxes, couldn't sleep, so what did he do? He had to come out, read to me the chronicles of my, of my rule. I want to hear all the great things I've done <laughs> that will help me get sleepy. I'm serious. So, we have the chronicles of Nebuchadnezzar, but from 582 B.C. until 575 B.C., there's nothing. There's nothing in the chronicle. you Think that's a coincidence? Do you think maybe they lost him? Do you understand what I'm saying? There's verifiable historical evidence for a seven-year period of silence in Nebuchadnezzar's reign.
1: That brings up something that really struck me when I read this. Every time I've read this, Babylon is the empire. Absolutely. He's gone. How unlikely is it that he wasn't replaced, mm-hmm. or that they didn't allow this crazy person mm-hmm. who was roaming the fields to come back? That's right. It doesn't really... The Bible never it doesn't, addresses them. It, no, it but it seems really strange yeah. that that would ever have
0: happened. Yeah. Because as it was the case in the ancient world, as it would be the case today, there will be a coup. Somebody would seize power, sure. the strongest man in the kingdom, and would make himself the new king. But God... I think we can only conclude, because you are absolutely right, the scriptures and history is very silent on this. We just have to infer that God is preserving the kingdom. He promised that if he repents, he will be given the kingdom back. And God did that. So, I mean, this, we have historical material that verify, doesn't, this decree verifies it, but there's a seven-year period of silence in the chronicles of King, King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And it would seem very reasonable that this is this period when he's sick. So let's look at what happens. Verse 30. He's on the r- roof of the royal palace. Possibly. Some believe, and, and I, we can't prove this, that he could be standing on the roof of the hanging gardens of Babylon. Have you ever heard of those? It's yep. one, one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was a it was an amazing thing that that Nebuchadnezzar built. His wife was from the mountains of Media, which is farther to the north, and she missed that. She missed the cool breezes of, of uh, during the summer months, and she missed the, the elevation with all the beautiful plants and so on. So he built this for her, and it it was. It, we have some evidence of where it may have been it's in modern day Iraq, and we can't go there and don't ever go there until things settle down if they ever do. So he's, he's in one of these incredible buildings in this massive city. In verse 30, the king reflected, is not this Babylon the great which I myself has built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? What word would you describe, what year, word would you use, what term would you summarize as the primary sin of Nebuchadnezzar? Pride. 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 Arrogance. Or one of, it's, it's a Greek word, but it's one of my favorite words. Is it present day Republican, Candidate who really manifests this as well (laughs) (laughs) hubris. Did you ever hear that word? That's a word, that's a word you ought to fold that into your vocabulary. It's a Greek word, but we brought it in English, it's used in writings and so on hubris. Arrogant, defiant pride. That's what Nebuchadnezzar manifests here. I did all that how great I am. I built Babylon the Great. And he did. He built that city. They estimate the walls of the city were wide. You could put seven Volkswagen bugs together and drive them all the way around. Do you understand? That's how wide it was. Do you understand what I mean by that illustration? This was an incredible city. And he had every right to stand. And man, I'm really something. Look at what I did. He's exalting himself. But what's the point of the dream? you must recognize that the most high rules in the affairs of men gives power to whomsoever he wishes. Nebuchadnezzar isn't manifesting that. I did all this. I am so great. Verse 31. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice from heaven came saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty, has been removed from you. Did God tell Nebuchadnezzar that was going to happen to him? Yes, through the dream. Now it's happened. Verse 32 And you will be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place. <coughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Your dwelling place will be in the beasts with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven periods of time, seven years, will pass over you. Now here for the third time in this chapter, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven from mankind. And began eating grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown out. Notice these are similes, like eagle's feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. In other words, if you don't clip your nails for seven years, they're going to be long like claws. That's, that's the simile there. All right, so here's Nebuchadnezzar, the, the most powerful man in the ancient world. Indisputably, he had no rivals. Now he's a wretched, abhorred, despised, mentally ill man out in the fields. It's incredible, isn't it? Who did this? God did it. That's the point of this decree. God did it. Remember, go all the way back to the beginning of the decree. This is what the most high God has done for me. All right, verse 34. Now these verses, verse 34 and 35 and into verse 36, are extremely important verses because of, this is the decree. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. I learned this. But at the end of the period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. My reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Now, in my Bible, they're probably pretty similar depending on your translation. I'm I'm assuming they're almost all identical. He raises his eyes toward heaven. Okay, that's a metaphor. It's a figure. But what is he saying? I acknowledge something. And I acknowledged the existence of the Most High God and the sovereignty of the Most High God. And then these verbs. Look at these verbs. I blessed Him. I praised Him. I honored Him. What kind of words are they? They're worship words, aren't they? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: They're worship words. They're words we use when we talk about worship. So here you have... This pagan king, the most powerful man in the ancient world at this time, from 582 to 575 B.C., silence in his kingdom, because he's in a field mentally ill. But at the end of this, he acknowledges the point of this mental illness. You must recognize that the Most High God rules. And he blesses him, he praises him, and he honors him. And this is what he says about him. Now, I want you to notice, I'm, I'm looking at the language and then I'm looking at some of the key words. So let's just go through this carefully. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Okay, that is a statement of sovereignty. This isn't a human ruler. This isn't the characteristics of me, Nebuchadnezzar. This is the characteristic of the Most High God. These are are astounding words, affirming the sovereignty of the Most High God. His dominion is everlasting, his kingdom endures from generation to generation. He's not like a human ruler. He's not like me, Nebuchadnezzar said. Verse 35. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Now, don't don't misread that point. That isn't saying that human beings don't mean anything to him. That's not what it's saying. But in comparison to the Most High God, human beings are like nothing. You can't even compare them. You cannot compare Yahweh, the Most High God, to human rulers or to any other human being. So he is make, he's making, again, a statement. This is astonishing. They didn't talk like this about their gods. This isn't how they talked about Marduk. He's talking about the Most High God in this way. Continuing verse 35, but he does according to his will. In the host of heaven, and among the habit inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done?
2: He's not accountable to
0: anyone. He's not accountable to anyone but himself. Now again, he's just don't skip over these words quickly. These 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 are astonishing words that are in a royal decree and I want to repeat for, it's about the fourth time I've said this this morning as this goes out to all the governors he is not talking about Marduk the god they worship <laughs> or Bel or Nebo or any of the other gods of the Babylonian pan- pantheon he's talking about the god of the Hebrews and he is saying things about this god that no other king on earth is saying verse 36 at that time my reason returned to me my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out so i was reestablished my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me the grace of god When it says, you know, his nobles begin seeking me out, means he's going back to the normal practices of running the kingdom. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Two questions, three questions actually. Question number one: Did Nebuchadnezzar get it?
2: Yes,
0: he, he did. It. He got the point. He got the point that God wanted him to get. You're going to be struck with mental illness until you learn that the Most High. Did he learn that? Yes. Verse thirty-four. Hard Pardon. It's a
2: hard way
0: of Well, yeah, but I mean the arrogance, the hubris that he exemplified as he stood on the. Roof in the Hanging Garden of Babylon, maybe, exhibited that. I mean, he's got God's got to break him down. He did. So he learned the lesson. Second question. Now think about think about it from this perspective. If you're a Jew and you're an exile in Babylon, or you were part of after 539 BC and you come back to Babylon, uh, come back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the temple and you read Daniel, what's this going to remind you of? What's this going to? What lesson are you going to learn? What would the Jews to learn from Chapter Four? The most
2: powerful king on the earth, repent. Their own lives. It, Their own lives. With that, you know, yeah. they so seeking after other gods. Mm-hmm.
0: And the the, si- the silliness of si- going after other gods mm-hmm. when they they have a god. That, Nebuchad- that brought Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on earth, to, 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 to mental illness. Broke him. Mm-hmm. That's our God. Mm-hmm. Why would we ever want to go after other gods? <laughs> and I mean, it's... And by the way, and I think you know this, but the one thing that the exile did for the Jews is it broke them of their penchant for idolatry. When they come back from the exile, they never struggle with that again. You don't see that. They, for the rest of the history of the Jews, when they come back from 539 B.C., and put Ezra and Nehemiah are all about those books. of them, They come back. They never struggle with idolatry again. As a matter of fact, during that period, that's when the Pharisee movement is born with that rigorous focus on the law and that intense singular focus on the law that then turns into a legalism, which is what Jesus deals with. So, I mean, the, God accomplished what he wanted to accomplish to the, with the Jews in the exile. But, uh, and that's, that's another story, uh, and we'll see that later in the book even. But here, the, th- the second question is, what would this do for the Jews? Oh, my goodness. They would read this and they say, it's just what Moses taught us. It's just what Abraham <clears throat> taught us. It's just what the, king, the prophets taught us. Our God is a supreme, sovereign Lord of the universe. Why would we go after other gods?
1: And God used Nebuchadnezzar to teach a lesson to that, Nebuchadnezzar's people.
0: That's right. As well as the Jews. Yeah. That's right.
2: Do you think that there could have been a little arrogance injected into the Jewish, the Jewish people out of this? We've got the best God. Of course. of course.
0: Yeah, and that would, that would be partially what um, was it characteristic of the Pharisaism that Jesus had to deal with then. Mm-hmm. The Pharisee rabbis of the first century, Jesus would have heard that. Like they would, they, than your yeah. Well, but they, they would say that they said it this way, Father Abraham sits at the gates of hell and won't let any of his people in. And That's you know, a saying, it's a rabbinic saying, but you understand what he's saying. We got the inside track with God. There is no way he is going to send us to hell. There's no way he's going to judge us. Now that's arrogance, because that's, that's the, they're missing the whole point. Now, here's the third question. Okay, question number one, did Nebuchadnezzar get the point? Question number two, what would this have done for these? Now, question number three is what I ask you to think about. Will we see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven?
2: What do you think? Sure, I'd say, I'd you know, say yay. am <laughs> going to take a vote on it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> course, but but do we, one of the requisites for going to heaven
1: is... Believing in Jesus Christ and mm. died for our sins and we were they were removed from us and, and he didn't have that opportunity to know about Jesus
0: Christ No, Jesus hasn't uh, been born but yet no, 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 but
1: he mentioned Solomon and mm-hmm. some of the others that didn't have the opportunity to Samson he did get well, yeah. Yeah.
0: Now let let's yeah. let's remember a couple of things here. We're we're getting yeah, okay, but that's good. It's a very legitimate question. Now re- let's review a couple of things. We, we've talked a little bit about this before in uh, in previous uh, studies. Um, remember, before Jesus, you know, before the. Christmas and Easter, just thinking of the two key holidays before the Incarnation and the the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and so on. And remember this: How did God deal with sin through the sacrifice of animals, blood sacrifice of animals? And it's when you study. It's in Deuteronomy. It's in Numbers. It's in Exodus. It's in Leviticus. And it's throughout the prophets, it's in the Psalms. In Psalm 51, when David is that penitential psalm, when he's repenting of his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, what does he want to do? He wants to restore his fellowship with God through God's grace and his repentance so that he can again offer sacrifices to God. When you offered the sacrifice of a lamb, or you went through the scapegoat ritual, your sins are transferred to that animal in the eyes of God. And the word that is used, it's all through the Old Testament, God atones for your sin. The word atone means God covers your sin. So, now, what is required there? And this is what the Old Testament says it, the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 reviews this. When you put your faith in God, that he is taking care of your sins through that substitutionary sacrifice of an animal, that is salvation. You are understanding God's taking care of your sin. Now, what happens when Jesus comes is God, and this is the language of the book of Hebrews, God once for all takes care of that. One final substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus dying on the cross, his blood being shed, and so on. And then we see that God accepts that when He raises him from the dead, the resurrection. So, I mean, I'm I'm reminded. So, when when Nebuchadnezzar is saying this, he is using language language of faith. Now, we don't have, you know, we don't, we just don't have very much information. This is a decree, and it's, then the story's over. Then we get, we fast forward a number of years to. 539 BC, when the kingdom of Babylon falls. That's what chapter 5 is all about. The, ne- the stories of Nebuchadnezzar are now over in the book of Daniel. We don't know any, there's no information because the temple is gone in Jerusalem. There, there's no sacrifice going on yet, again. So we just we don't know enough information. But from the statement that we have here, is Nebuchadnezzar uniquely putting his faith in the Most High God?
2: See, because, I, I don't think there's enough evidence to admit it. Uh, and that's why I agree with my
1: brother over here when he said possible. We do not, you can't stand in God's church. We do not know
0: right. that he was the king of kings. The New Testament tells us mm-hmm. not everyone that says Lord, Lord is going to come. to he certainly affirms the sovereignty of God, the unique sovereignty of God. And that's this decree is just yeah. remarkable for that reason. But I, I dare I think you you said it probably the best. We don't have enough information to make a definitive conclusion about Nebuchadnezzar in terms of eternity. See, there's another part in the New Testament where
1: it says. And every knee shall bow, mm-hmm. and every tongue confess every knee there. Yeah, Amen. Amen. yeah. yeah. And, and including those who are not
0: saved. That's right, who right. reject, that's right. So they'll recognize. That's just right.
1: After seven years, he recognized.
0: Yeah, it. yeah. So it. we just, and and that's that's the wisest, and like you said, probably. We want to believe it. I mean, certainly the language directs us in that way, but only God knows his heart. We just do not have enough information. And this is it. There's nothing else. There's nothing more in in the book of Daniel about Nebuchadnezzar. There's Uh, nothing more. There's no more information in the prophets or anything like that that gives us any insight. I
2: I was just going to say, you know, in 36, he's going back to all of his splendor Mm -hmm. and all of his Mm -hmm. that he had before. I don't, you know. Then he makes that statement in verse thirty-seven. He just didn't slip back into his arrogance and pride. Yeah, Yeah. and
0: he makes statements like his ways are true. Speaking Mm -hmm. of God, his ways are true. His ways are just, and he has the power to humble those who walk in pride. Mm -hmm. I always, I always find verse thirty-seven extremely valuable. Because you know, in, you, even if you have a cursory knowledge of history, you know that is exactly what has happened. <clears throat> Every individual who has power and exalts himself in that power, God brings him down. I mean, I, I don't know, but you start, just start with various, you know, like Alexander the Great. You know, he conquered the whole world in 11 years in 323 BC, dies in Babylon. A humiliating death. Julius Caesar, one of the most arrogant men in the late days of the Roman Republic. What happened to him? He's assassinated. I mean, you can and I, I an example in the 20th century, and there are many. But one of my favorite examples is Benito Mussolini, and I only choose him because his his arrogance in those. Those early days when he sees his power in Rome, and you know what his goal is—to kind of restore the glory of the Roman Empire—and I can, I've seen those those films. He stands on that, you know, very arrogantly. I am so great. What happened to him? He was he was overthrown by the rebels, and he and his mistress wasn't even his wife were hung upside down and brutally. Another example is Nikolai Chertsev the ruler of communist Romania, when all of those Eastern European countries were falling to, from com, to communism and no longer satellites the USSR, same thing happened to him and his wife. On Christmas Day, 1989, they were murdered by the rebels seizing power. And he declared himself to be a demagogue. I mean, on and on and on. God, humble souls, who walk in hubris. Defiant, arrogant pride. And Nebuchadnezzar learned that lesson. I I think the way Daryl put it is, is, is good, wise, cautious way to put it. We probably don't have enough information to declare the eternal state of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, personally, I hope he is (laughs) man he's one of those men if he is in heaven i i want to talk to him for quite a long period of time you know it's just but we don't know the grace of god is amazing so we'll see john did you ever
1: i say you'd think he would have gone after 37 one step further and said this high god is the one that we as Babylonians are going mm-hmm. to worship from this point on, and no others.
0: He doesn't say that.
1: doesn't say that no, he doesn't, yeah. doesn't. So.
0: Yeah. It's and, just he, what he says is, is really truly remarkable, and it, it is, and remember, this is a decree that goes out throughout the kingdom. This would have been a decree that the governors of the various provinces would have read and probably read in their, in their courts. but uh, we just he's not saying we're going to do away with Marduk now. Going to do away with Bel and Nebo, it, you know, we, it, it, we don't know that. But Nebuchadnezzar, um, as, as you know, we dated this stuff, Nebuchadnezzar will rule for a few more years. This is near the end of his rule. He's going to rule for a few more years and then die. And it do, there's nothing more in the book of Daniel, and we get to chapter 5, which is, uh, I'll introduce it here in a minute, is this is the end of the Babylonian kingdom. In, 530, uh, in 539 BC, the, the Persians under Cyrus conquer Babylonia. Seemingly impregnable, seemingly unconquerable city, they do it. And this is what chapter 5 is all about. All right, now let me see if you have questions or additional comments about chapter 4, anything you want to ask me about or you want to talk or comment on. It's a very, very important chapter still he what to heaven well <laughs> we will see we will see yeah we
2: know so can we ask the question today if someone if you asked is you think Nebuchadnezzar's gonna go to Nebuchadnezzar is going to go Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar is going to go to heaven can we ask that same question about us do we have enough evidence to say yes we are going to heaven Fred's going to heaven I'm going to heaven and someone said I'm mean, going to pose that question amongst us I don't know how that relates in in today's time. Now that Jesus has come, I guess it's confusing in my mind. that I thought we have enough evidence. If someone asked we, me,
0: we do, we do, oh, okay. we do. Now, now, remember, we're we're reading a narrative of a decree and so on, but um, you the the New Testament. Uh, because that's really how you're asking a question. The New Testament makes it very, very... And my favorite verse on that is always John 6, 37. He that believes has eternal life. And, I mean, that's in the context of Jesus talking about himself and his, what he's going to do, he's going to die, and his blood's going to be shed. He that believes has eternal life. We can have absolute certainty in our heart, you and I, and as we testify and give witness around the table. If you've made that decision of faith and you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have the certainty of eternal life of heaven. There is no question. I, in my, it's a very deep-seated conviction of mine. God wants us, but it's just personally now, God wants us to have assurance of our faith. Amen. He wants us to have assurance.
2: Yeah.
0: And that the, the the evidence for that is 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 clear in the New Testament. And my favorite chapter on that is Romans 8. Just... Absolute central chapter on God we don't
2: claim this as our holiness but we claim it as mm-hmm. God's mm-hmm. requirement to come to him that's his specification not ours so we are not holy in that respect but he is holy and Christ is holy and if we meet the criteria that God has given to us it's because of his grace not because of our righteousness that
0: we have eternal life. It is Christ's righteousness that's applied to our life by faith. That's justified by faith. That's right. Not our righteousness. Not our It's the righteousness of Christ. And that's right. That's our, our guarantee. That's our guarantee. not arrogance on our No, mind. not at all. No, not at all. And I mean that it's just and I, I appreciate you you asking that question because we in right. this side of the cross. And I mean that would have been true for even before the cross because of the Jewish person when they understood what God was doing through their sacrifices. That's, if you use New Testament language, that's when they're saved. They understand what God is doing. They understand how God is taking care of their sin problem. And for you and me, it's exactly the same thing. And it's God taking care of our sin problems through Jesus, through his sacrifice and, and, and then through his resurrection, which validated that. So, I mean, that, that clarity and that certainty, that assurance, God wants us to have that. That's why he sent his son. All right. Anything else? Yeah. Uh, two-part question, I think. These people you mentioned, uh, mostly and you know all them, oh, in what history, it really it got to them was their arrogance. Absolutely. Yep.
1: So is that one of the biggest factors that draws men down?
0: Well, I think that's ultimately... The Bible seems to say that... Um, that was certainly true of Satan. You see that in Isaiah fourteen. Um, the arrogant, defiant pride is uh, is probably the vital center of sin. I don't need God. I don't. I don't need you. I don't want what you are offering me. And so that's that is a statement of pride. That's a statement of arrogance. Is that a form of blasphemy? It is. I think. Yeah, I think it is. Mm-hmm. All right. Now let me. This is good. I hope you, you enjoyed and benefited and are blessed by this chapter. But that, that word up there that I wrote is, is a good word. Hubris is not, should not characterize you. shouldn't characterize me. shouldn't characterize anyone else. It is humility, and humility is a, another way of thinking, and, and I think living, in dependence on God. That I've got a fundamental problem. God has made a solution to that problem through his Son. And he wants me to appropriate that by faith. I don't have anything to do with that. I don't earn it. I don't merit it. I don't deserve it. As I've often said, God puts the gift on the table. And we've got to pick it up. If we don't pick it up, it's not applied to our life. All right, now let's do chapter 5 for next week, okay? Now chapter 5, fast forward from 575 BC, which is when Nebuchadnezzar's sanity is returned and all of that. Now we go forward to 539 B.C. 539 B.C. in chapter 5 focuses on Belshazzar, not Belteshazzar, that's Daniel's Babylonian name. This is Belshazzar, who is the king, the last king of Babylon. And as you read this, it's not quite as long, it's almost as long, not quite as long as chapter 4. Again, I want you to note the arrogance, if you will, the hubris, of Belshazzar. How do you see that? The second thing I want you to observe as you read it is God then intervenes. And there's the writing on the wall. You know, you, that's everybody, even people knowing about the Bible, they've heard that story writing on the wall. <laughs> and so obviously, God is writing on the wall. And make sure you understand the meaning of what is written on the wall. And then we're we're going to talk about what happens happens to him. What I'm really interested in, as you look carefully, look at verse 22, 23, and even into 24. Daniel is speaking to Belshazzar. Belshazzar summons Daniel, because Daniel's not a part of this drunken feast. And he says to him, that is, Daniel says to Belshazzar, There are some things you need to learn from your grandfather. And his grandfather's Nebuchadnezzar. See if you can identify what he wants him to learn there. So tomorrow, I strike that. uh, Next week, um, we'll do chapter 5, which is the collapse of the Babylonian Empire and the rise of the Persian Empire, because it's the Persians who destroyed Babylon. And I want to talk some more. And there's some stuff in the notes, that, particularly there in the middle of, of page 7, that gives you some of the historical information that can make this chapter come alive for you. All right? This is a good study, isn't it? I, I, love, I love to teach the book of Daniel, and you guys are making it really enjoyable because enga- you're engaged with it. And that's what I want to see happen. Oh this one is your favorite books, Daniel? Oh. It's one, of, it's one of my favorites. It really is. But I wouldn't say it is my favorite. All right. Let me, let me have a word of prayer because I've got to get out of here. All right. Father, we're grateful for uh, our study in the book of Daniel, especially as we... Uh, just finished studying that remarkable decree it's really astonishing uh, that nebuchadnezzar issued and as we've talked only you know the heart of nebuchadnezzar only you lord know if he's truly in heaven Uh, we hope he is Um, we know your grace can extend to anyone we just don't have enough information from the bible to make that kind of a definitive conclusion so we trust you with that but i think the point for all of us from this chapter is Hubris, arrogant, defiant pride um, is, is, a, is an evil that was evident in Nebuchadnezzar and you brought him down. And history tells us that when rulers on individuals, in fact, exhibit that, um, Lord, that is something that uh, is displeasing to you and it's something that you deal with. And for us who have put our faith in Christ, we've understood that we do not have the capacity to take care of our own problem or sin. That's why Jesus came, and it is an act of humility even to embrace Jesus and understand that his death or resurrection is for us. And that that humbling fact is an eternally significant humbling fact because it brings us the promise of heaven, of eternal life. Jesus said he that believes has eternal life. We claim that truth. My prayer is that everyone around this table has made that decision of faith. We therefore walk with you in dependence. We're learning what it means to walk with you. We're learning more and more about you. And we're learning more and more about the wonderful truth that you're a God who's sovereign, who's in control. You are accomplishing your purposes, and we trust you with that. you made a lot of promises to us, and we are holding you to those promises because you are a faithful, trustworthy God. We walk with you in dependence, and we bring glory to you by what we do in Christ's name.
1: See you next week.